0: hey everyone can you hear me give me a thumbs up if you can hear me everybody here nobody here where's everybody hello live chat okay here we go let's go back how you doing guys okay first question from jordan schroeder by the way of course guys if you wish for me to answer your questions you have to be a super chat donor great to see you all finish the semester i'm feeling good i'm excited submitted the galley proofs uh, of my book it's now gone into press don't forget to pre-order your copy of the sad truth about happiness eight secrets for leading the good life so let's jump in so question one from Jordan Schroeder, the first super chat donor. Thank you so much, Jordan. Gad, I've heard that sex-differentiated dress is something that is universal across cultures. True. What is the evolutionary basis of this? Well, it depends what you mean by uh, sex-differentiated dress. There are There's a tribe in uh, the uh, Wada'abi people in uh, across Europe, uh, not Europe, uh, Africa, who, who actually it's the men who beautify themselves in, in the way that you would typically think that the you know the ladies would be beautifying themselves? I think it's called the wall ritual, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, I think what, what the universal element is that both men and women use sex-specific cues, sartorial cues, dress cues, to impress the opposite sex in the mating market. But uh, you know, there were cases where it was men who wore high heels. Think About the Louis 14 days, uh, because in that case, you're trying to be taller. So, uh, but in general, there are certain, uh, you know, sex specific uh, clothing that you typically would find, but it's not quite a universal, it's maybe a near universal. Thank you for that question, Jordan. Let's move on to Bob the Terrible. Is it puzzling that human males don't guard their mates constantly given the high cost of cacaudery? Do intelligence and communication play a role? Uh, well. So there are some interesting studies that look at, for example, the the amount of time that you are away from your female partner will determine the extent to which, you know, you might engage in, uh, guarding strategies, uh, and what, there are some research that shows that the amount of, uh, sperm that you deliver, if you like, in a mating encounter with your partner, uh, goes up or down depending on the likelihood of her having cuckolded you if you were away so there are definitely some contingent mechanisms that either increase or decrease the the the alacrity with which you uh, engage in mate guarding i would say though that probably the number one predictor of that uh, is the uh sense of uh confidence that the male possesses men who uh, need to use uh, threats and violence uh, to guard their partners usually have low mating value. The guy who uh, stands very confidently in terms of his mating value, he knows that the likelihood of his partner cheating on him goes down the higher his mate value is. So there you go. Thank you, Bob the Terrible, for your question and for your donation. Let's move on to the next person, Marvin Gunz. Just gave a donation. Thank you so much. Uh, again, people, I forgive me for saying this, but I respond to people who, uh, I appreciate everybody being here, but I go through the people who uh, uh, donate via super chats and so on. Paul Butala, uh, thank you so much for your uh, contribution. The Rational Mail series, have you read it? R- R- Rolo Tomaso said he would like to do a pod cla- What's a pod class? I don't know if that's different from a podcast. Uh, I have heard many times from, I guess, his fans. I don't know if it's his fans or if it's his burner accounts from many people saying that that he wishes to chat with me. It, I have no reason to not want to chat with him other than the fact that uh, I have a tight schedule. I receive way more invitations. I'm fortunate enough to receive way more invitations that my time permits me to do, to accept. If I had enough time, uh, I would want to do a lot more. So I often have to say no to people, not because I'm not interested in speaking to them, but simply because I run out of time. So there you have it. Uh, All right, moving on. Are there any questions so far that I've missed? All right, hold on. Bob the Terrible, I've answered. Jordan, I've answered. Where is everybody? Where are the people? Uh, I'm out of questions. We only have 91 people here. Usually we have several hundred I think it might be in part because uh, I do these on the spur of the moment, which is not really the smart way to do this. You should usually you know, prepare people to be there. Oh, I do one every Monday at 5 o'clock. But I'm just a very instinctual guy. I'm very uh, impulsive. If I feel like doing one, I do one. But uh, okay, I think we've got a new one. We've got Milos Potich. I hope I pronounced that. Book recommendation for someone who did not read many books in general. Oh, boy, there are a million such books. It depends what your interests are. I could tell you what I'm currently reading. Excuse me one second. I'm currently reading. Oh, you like this? Look at the Godfather. You like that? Uh, I'm currently reading uh, this guy right here, Eric Kandel in search of memory. Fantastic book. For those of you who don't know, Eric Kandel is a Nobel prize winning neuroscientist. He's, he trained as a physician Uh, thinking that he would go into psycho, uh, to become a psychoanalyst. This is in the old days, uh, you know, shortly after the Freudian days in the 50s and 60s, where many of the psychoanalysts were first trained as medical doctors and then would go into psychoanalysis. And then uh, he eventually got interested in uh, neurobiology and decided to study the biological basis of learning. How does the brain encode learning when you learn something? What is actually happening at the proximate level with your neurons, with your synapses, with your dendrites? What, How is that being instantiated materialistically in the brain? And for that, he won the Nobel Prize. So this book is about his autobiography, I mean, both in terms of his personal autobiography, but also the, the biography or the autobiography of his uh, scientific career. Very, very interesting. What I thought was amazing about the book, I'm about... Almost halfway through, not quite what I love about the book is that it uh you see the historical continuity in many of these stories of hardship, so in his case, there's a famous knock at the door as the Nazis are coming in he's he's a uh, Aust- Austrian Jew he was born in Austria uh, he was nine years old when they had to leave uh, Austria and then you know came to the United States. Of course, I was eleven when I had to leave Lebanon and come to Canada. And of course, for those of you who've read The Parasitic Mind right here, in chapter one, I talk about the infamous knock at the door, which I I now call that story the pomegranate story, for those of you who read the book. Uh, one of the most chilling stories uh, that one can imagine, and certainly one that marked me. That's why I included that story in the book. There was a lot of very difficult situations growing up in Lebanon, uh, but... P- you know, this was certainly one of the most chilling ones. And so in reading his story, you know, he's, he's still alive, by the way, he's 93, I think, Uh, you see how history repeats itself, even though we're from completely different time periods, you know, different parts of the world, but there is a continuity to history, in this case, tragic elements of history. So I would highly recommend that book, we're up to 121 people. Uh, That's great. I'd like to get to you know, 300 people, but I'm not seeing super chats. You know, a lot of people send me a million emails asking me all sorts of questions. And if I spent all day doing nothing but answering questions for free, I would do nothing but that. And of course, that's not quite fair. I put all of my content for free everywhere. I don't charge anybody. I haven't put it behind paywalls. So ultimately one has to monetize their time. So uh, please, if you would like to ask me questions, uh, please do so via a super chat. Okay, thank you, Milosh. Let's move on. We've got Jordan Schroeder's back. Thank you so much, F. Uh, U. Uh, uh, for your information. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, F slash U. Uh, am I too old? Am I a dinosaur that I don't know what that means? Referring to males uh, versus female dressing differently, there's always a norm, even if different in each culture, we always make them look different. Why? Uh, you mean, why is it that we make the male dress different from the female dress? Well, I, I think it's some of the uh, some of the people t- in today's world might not think this is politi- politically correct, but we are a sexually reproducing species consisting of two phenotypes that have different size gametes. There's a male phenotype and a female phenotype. And to the extent that we are a sexually reproducing species with sexual dimorphisms, then it would only make sense that the accoutrements that we wear, the sartorial uh, choices that we make, would be differentiated. Although, as you probably know, in some uh, authoritarian regimes, you try to create genderless uh, uniformity, you know, this kind of a, a collectivist mind hive mindset whereby everybody kind of dresses neutrally. You even see it in some cults where they try to remove some of these sex markers. But to the extent that all cultures have these uh, sex-specific markers, it, it, it obviously makes sense for sexually reproducing species to do that. I mean, in the context of other sexually reproducing species, you actually see those differences not in the clothes that we wear, but for example, in the plumage. So think about birds. Birds are a wonderful class of animals to study sexual selection because you typically have huge sex-based differentiation in morphology, in coloring, in uh, dancing, in uh, the, the songs that they use to woo the other sex. And typically, it's the males that are much more extravagant. Although you have several cases of sexual reversals where it is the females who are bigger, who collect the harem of males. So, for example, the cassowary bird in uh, Australia that looks exactly like a dinosaur, it is a sexual reversal species. It is the males that provide the greater, minimal, uh, obligatory parental investment, and therefore every sex difference is reversed. The males are smaller. The males uh, uh, sit on the eggs. The males... Uh, are less aggressive, uh, more sexually you know, sexually choosier, so you have an exact reversal. But for most species, it is the males that are more colorful. Thank you very much, Jordan, for your two fantastic questions. Chris Panagiotopoulos. Dr. Gad, I will forgive the uh, wrongly spelled Gad. It's uh, Unless you meant sad, in which case it's S-A-A-D. If you meant Gad, it's G-A-D, but I shall forgive you. How possible do you find the evolutionary biology approach of social tendencies and matters to prevail, considering always the parasitic ones now? Sorry, I don't get what you mean. Let me read it again. Dr. Gad, how possible do you find the evolutionary biological approach of social tendencies and matters to prevail, considering always the parasitic ones now? I'm I'm afraid I don't quite understand the structure of the question. Uh, but if what you're saying is... You know, how good are evolutionary psychological explanations of social phenomena? Well, they are very good. I mean, the you know, my whole career, my academic career has been trying to apply or not trying, applying evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biological principles in studying all sorts of consumer phenomena, economic phenomena, mate choice, gift giving. Uh, hormonal effects of various phenomena and how those are rooted in evolutionary theory. So you can't understand anything involving a biological agent of any type, let alone a human agent, without incorporating the evolutionary angle. That's the whole point of my entire career. So of course, I think that they are indispensable. You you can't fully understand human behavior if you presume that humans uh, are somehow outside the realm of biology. So thank you for that. I, I hope that I got to the gist of your question. Thank you, Chris, for your contribution. Let's move on. We're at 143 people. We need to get to double that. Oh, I have here not a super chat person. Good evening from Israel, Gad. Great. Rumor has it if you speak Hebrew, uh, I do speak Hebrew. Uh, if I immerse myself back in Israel or in a Hebrew context, it comes back very quickly. So I do consider that I speak Hebrew, but Today, I would say my Hebrew is limited to uh, I feel tired. I would like to have a sandwich. Do you want to go play soccer at the beach? So, in other words, I can't have a philosophical conversation or I can't have an interview about the parasitic mind in Hebrew. Although I suspect that if I immerse myself long enough in a Hebrew context, it would come back to me quickly. Uh, Okay, let's continue with the uh, super chatters or donors. Anthony Bentel. What is your opinion on God? Wow, that's a great question, a big one. That might have required a slightly larger Super Chat donation for, for such a question, but nonetheless, I appreciate your generosity. Marvin Gunz also just gave a donation without any questions. I truly appreciate that. Uh, so what is my view on God? If if what you mean is, uh, I mean, literally, what do I think of the characteristics that are attributed to God, or are you asking whether I believe that God exists or not? Uh, most of you probably know that I'm not a very religious person, although I'm very much uh, rooted in my religious heritage. Uh, I, I am very uh, Jewish uh, in that being Jewish, I mean, nobody has lived their Judaism more than I have in Lebanon, right? So so it's, it's with me forevermore. Uh, So I think one can be certainly linked to their religious heritage because, uh, you know, it includes many elements. There's a historical element. There is a cultural element. There is a a communal element, right? Uh, But specifically God, I'm not a strong uh, believer in God, Uh, although incident, I don't know if this is where you wanted to go with the question, but I do think that you can be very spiritual. And I don't mean in a cliche sense. I think you can you can have great reverence for things that are beyond you, that are greater than you, without necessarily rooting it in a narrative of God, in a supernatural God. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it makes life that much more magical if you can have such awe and reverence to to things, to experiences, to nature, without thinking that there is some guy and some guy in the sky who is controlling everything so uh i am in that sense spiritual so for example when i when i write a book and you know i i open the laptop day one and there isn't a single syllable in that word document and then 12 months later 14 months later however time it might be later i send it off to the publisher and then a few months later we go go back and forth then it goes to press. And then a few months later, you guys are sending me uh, photos of you reading it in Croatia and Romania and Israel and Dubai. And uh, that is awe-inspiring. That's beautiful. It connects us all. These ideas now spread from my brain to the laptop, to your brain. Uh, So there are endless ways by which we can exhibit a a love for the divine without the divine being godly, if I can put it that way. I look at my children and my love for them is immeasurable. And that love, you can call it godly, you can call it biological because they are the vehicles of propagating my genes. Uh, So there are many ways by which I can be infinitely reverent to, to life and to the majesty of life without necessarily thinking that it is godly. I hope that I've answered your question, Anthony. Thank you so much for this uh, rather deep question. Uh, okay, moving on. We're at 157 people. Let's get it to at least, usually I get about three, at least 300. I don't know why only 300. It should be 3,000. Oh, FU means follow up. <laughs> thank you. I was worried that FU meant something else, but it didn't seem that the per- Jordan was hostile. So thank you for clearing that up. Will you ever teach a 200, 300 level undergraduate class? I have to. I just finished teaching a course well, I think it's 400 level. Uh, I should mention this, by the way. Uh, I just thought, so I finished class last week, and, you know, it always, it's beautiful at the end. Students are lovely. They appreciate. But, you know, this past semester might have been the most moving uh, sending off I've ever had. It was just unbelievable how uh, loving uh, and and appreciative the students were, uh, and, and actually, my daughter had come to to the last lecture, so she actually got to see that, and she w- she was very moved uh, by by the students' affection for you know for the for me for the class for my efforts. Uh, so this is when it really uh, you know you work hard all semester. Sometimes it's, it's difficult times. You know you're working all night to prepare a class. You got problems with this student or that student, but then it all comes together, and it's very very rewarding. So. So there you go. Okay, let's keep going. I'm looking I'm looking for those uh we have Nika Melfly. Uh Thank you so much just a donation. Very very appreciated. Uh let me go on here. We've got uh oh, okay, we got some good people coming in a few more. Okay, here we go. Good evening from Israel God rumor has it if you speak Hebrew uh then you have a whole bunch of Okay. Uh well, I think I already said Meod. I speak Hebrew but not too well. But uh incidentally, I two days ago, I think, I appeared on an Israeli show uh with an Israeli gentleman. I think the chat will be out in about two weeks. Uh he had reached out to me several times before I finally was able to uh to say yes. So to the people earlier who said about uh, the gentleman, rational male, whatever, maybe one day we will hold the chat. It's nothing personal. Uh, I don't think, though, that he will be translating it in Hebrew. I mean, we held the chat in English, uh, but it was a very, very good chat. He really prepared well for our conversation. He asked some really uh, good questions. So I hope that you'll enjoy it. So, todaraba, haver, and there you go, which means basically, thank you very much, friend. Okay, we're moving on to grinning Tiki 220. Uh thank you for your contribution. Uh how much longer will this political chaos last and do you see signs of it reversing currently? I think it will last for the foreseeable future. Uh I I wish I could say that I see it reversing, but I I don't really see too many signs of uh you know, things improving. Uh so for example, the the stuff that I discuss in the parasitic mind. Remember, the parasitic mind came out the hardcover in 2020, so it's now two and a half years ago. And I couldn't stand before you today and say, "Oh, you know what? We've already reached the the woke, woke you know, woke peak, and we're now on the downswing of woke. Uh, the the craziness continues." Now, I'd like to think that maybe you know the old expression, "A wounded animal is is is very dangerous." At that point right? Because he's kind of fighting on his last breath. So maybe this is kind of the final stand of, of the parasitic BS and it'll improve. But I certainly don't see any institutional mechanisms that are suggesting that we're out of it. If anything, I'm seeing things only worsening. And this is why, by the way, so I haven't applied now for a few years for uh, grants, scientific grants, nor have I applied for a chaired professorship, which by the way, i I held the chaired professorship, university-wide chair, which is the most prestigious professorship for 10 years. And then when it came to time to renew it, and it should have been a no-brainer, like from an objective metrics perspective, it would have been a no-brainer. They refused me for a few years. Not surprisingly, I ended up losing a lot of money. Uh, I ended up losing one course off each year. Uh, So it was very, very costly for me. Uh, But then I decided over the past couple of years to not even try to apply anymore. Number one, because I think I stand zero chance of having having it or winning it in today's environment. But number two, I wasn't willing to do the diversity, inclusion, and equity statements. I thought it would be quite hypocritical of me to, you know, be the guy who is, you know, fighting against parasitic ideas, but then when it comes to my career, to simply play along the game of parasitic nonsense. Uh, so that's actually one of the reasons, by the way, why it's important for you guys, if you support my work, to pre-order my book. Again, I'm not. I'm not trying to sit here and grovel at you, but you know, time is money. Expertise is has to be remunerated. If you support my work, again, I do all this, you know, for free. Uh, please head off today and pre-order the book. It really matters because when the book comes out in July, all of the pre-orders turn into immediate sales that first week. Which means that if there are enough people who pre-order the book, it could start off by being on the bestsellers list if it is on the bestseller list that gives it momentum it's a domino effect and then you know things keep moving so uh so you know if you really appreciate my work and my efforts uh please consider donating here in super chat please consider sharing my work commenting about my work uh pre-ordering the book and so on believe me it's not easy to be me in academia but i do it out of purity All right, thank you so much, grinning tiki two twenty. All right, moving on, we've got Bartolome. Oh yes, I remember you, Esteban Murillo. Thank you so much for your contribution. Good afternoon, Doctor Sad. What's the evolutionary basis for autism? Here's a humble donation for you. When inevitably you get shaken down, I'm I'm about to tell you something, guys. You are 185 people here. I wish you were eighteen thousand five hundred. We need to get these numbers to be much higher. Uh, But I appreciate each of you that you could be doing many other things. You chose to be here with us. So thank you for that. Last night, I had a dream of Justin Trudeau where I was actually running after him and kind of screaming at him to give me back the money that he stole from me, the book royalties that he took for this book. So that gives you a sense. You don't have to be, Jung or Freud and, and you know, read the interpretation of dreams to understand that that's something that is, you know, it remains, it's almost a year ago now, it remains something that every time I think about it, I almost go into a catatonic state, a, a rape victim state, that someone that I could have participated passively in someone stealing all of my, uh, the rewards of my, my thoughts, my words. I won't get into it now, but thank you for that contribution. Uh, I think the the best, uh, to answer your question about the evolutionary base of autism, I think the gentleman who has worked on that is Simon Baron Cohen, who is a neuropsychologist uh, out of England and happens to be the cousin, if I'm not mistaken, of the comedian and actor, Sasha Baron Cohen. And so if you would like to look at uh, some of the, uh, you know, I, I do believe that he he does try to link some evolutionary explanation to autism. I would recommend that you uh, check out uh, his work. If I'm not mistaken, more boys than girls are likely to suffer from autism and there is some sex-specific differentiation that causes that. I, I don't remember the exact argument, but I think it's, si- it's Simon Baron Cohen who, who is the, the leading guy to answer that question for you. So if you do a, a quick search on Google, you'd be able to get that answer. So there you go. George Bingham, uh, thank you so much for your contribution. Hi, Dr. Saad. Looking back on your esteemed career, what is the most surprising, unexpected result from a study research that you've performed? Wow, what an amazing <laughs> question. Uh, so if you mean by surprising or unexpected uh that would obviously be something that was contrary to what uh, I had hypothesized, a priori. And so the first one that comes to mind, that that, that so I'll just answer with that one, is one whereby, this is a, a paper published in 2009, it's Sad and Vungas, V-O-N-G-A-S. Vungas was one of my graduate students, and we had worked on a project together, looking at the effects of conspicuous consumption on testosterone. Mm-hmm. And we had done two studies, really, truly cool studies. You know, some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the, my, some of my best scientific work. Uh, I mean, I, although I'm, I'm frankly proud of all of it, but because it was a study where we, we didn't, it wasn't, oh, imagine yourself engaging in this behavior. In study one, we brought in young men and then we had rented a Porsche And then we had also gotten a beaten up old car and gotten young men to drive both the Porsche and the beaten up old car in two environments, either in downtown Montreal on the weekend where everybody can see you either driving the loser car or the high status car. And then on a semi deserted highway where you don't have the audience effect. Uh, Anyways, it's a a big experimental setup. In study two, we looked at what happens to your testosterone level when another man is showing off. And one of the surprising things—I mean, there are several surprising uh, effects in both of these studies that we weren't expecting—but I'll, I'll mention one. Uh, it turns out, for example, that young men' their testosterone level increased very highly, both in the when driving a Porsche, both in the downtown and on the you know semi-deserted highway. We, of course, thought that testosterone would go up more. In downtown, where there's a greater audience, right? To the extent that you're more likely to be engaging in sexual signaling when there's an audience of young women looking at you driving the Porsche, then that will create an even a greater increase of my testosterone. And what we found is that, if I remember correctly, in both conditions, testosterone of men increased. And the reason for that is probably because the young men are coming from, you know, they're probably, you know, taking a bus usually to school or riding their bicycle. So the fact that you put them in, in, you know, you you imbued them with such high social status so quickly driving a Porsche, irrespective of the condition that caused a huge spike in their testosterone. So that would be certainly one example of a very high profile study had received tons of media Mm -hmm. attention and a lot of scientific attention where a priori, we weren't expecting that, which by the way, speaks to an important point to any of you aspiring scientists, never, never scam or commit an ethical violation, right? We didn't go back and change uh, our hypothesis to fit the data. Once you commit to a hypothesis, that's it. That's locked in. Now, this shows you that even though in some cases you get results that are not, you know, congruent with what you had a priori hypothesized, there's still great value in the work as long as you hopefully have a, in this case, a a, a post-hoc explanation of why the results came out the way that they did. Uh, and in study two, which I won't get into now, there were also some uh, surprising results. Thank you for that really great question. Really appreciate it, Mr. Bingham. Moving on, we got Anthony Bentil. Oh, just a nice donation with, with some kind of icon. I'm not exactly sure. I guess it's somebody wearing glasses. Thank you so much. We're almost at 200... Uh, Uh, people, let's get it up. We're only 30 minutes in. Let's see if we can get it up to 300, 400 more. I have Asperger's, uh, and it has ruined my life. Why has such a maladaptive brain deformity not been weeded out via the evolutionary process? So, there are. Well, I'm sorry that you've had that. Of course, Asperger's is high functioning autism. This is where you can excel in certain domains that don't typically require, you know, for example, high emotional intelligence or high social acuity, uh, where they could be, for example, pattern recognition. You could be in mathematics. You can be a computer programmer where the fact that you have certain lacuna and in, in your social interactions still allows you to function highly. And so maybe this is your case. Uh, there are several. I'll answer your question more generally than just, um, you know, for for autism for Aspergers in this case. Uh, although th- this similar principle can be applied to Aspergers, which also speaks to the earlier question about the evolutionary roots of autism. So, in this book right here, the evolutionary basis of consumption, and in this book, where is it right here, the consuming instinct. Uh, I have sections where I talk about. Oh, I have a big donation that i have to get to soon two big donations uh number why is it that we engage in dark side consumption obsessive obsessive compulsive disorders eating disorders uh pornographic addictions uh compulsive buying pathological gambling these are maladaptive of course and the argument that i give is i argue that these are maladaptive misfirings of an otherwise adaptive process. So take, for example, OCD. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It makes perfect adaptive sense for me to wash my hands if I feel like I've had germ contamination on my hands. It makes perfect sense for me to check that the back door of my house is locked. What doesn't make sense if I am stuck in a loop for eight hours doing it. So it's a misfiring of an otherwise adaptive process, and many of these psychiatric conditions have exactly that same structure in explaining them. An adaptive pro- process goes haywire, and it becomes maladaptive. Thank you very much. Let me go to the two gentlemen. We've got Ravi Komatireddy. Oh, wait a minute. That's Doctor Ravi Komatireddy. Which, by the way, I'd love to know. I don't want to give up give away anything that's personal. What's happened to the project that you had uh, reached out to me about. Uh, I hope that I'm not going to be regretting soon the fact that you are a billionaire and somehow I wasn't on that gravy train. You're looking great, my friend. A paragon of truth and courage. I always learn something from listening uh, to you. You are too kind, doctor. You're very, very sweet. What lovely words. By the way, we were talking a second ago about spirituality and divinity and awe-inspiring. Here's a gentleman. I didn't know him at first. He reached out to me. We started communicating. He comes here, gives a very generous donation. I don't know if you can see it or not. And just says some lovely words. That's awe-inspiring. That's what makes life magisterial. So thank you so much. I'm very touched by your kind words. Uh, Moving on to the next person. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it, uh, Ravi. Uh, There was another gentleman that was here, but I hope that he hasn't left. Uh, be upset that I didn't listen to him or didn't answer his question. I don't know where he is. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something's going on. Just sending support. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. Hold on a second. Uh, I don't know what's happening, but the whole screen went big on me. I don't know. Okay. Let me see. I have Asperger's. Let me go down. Sorry, guys. Just sending support. Thank you. The prequel. Respect. Thank you very much. Oh, just sending support. That was Jack Cross. Thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, I'm looking to see if I'm missing anybody. I really don't know what's happened. My whole screen looks wrong. Let me see if I can make. Oh, okay. I got it smaller. Uh, Jack Cross. We've got the prequel. Okay. Thank you. There was another gentleman who had put a big, big donation, but apparently I missed him. Maybe he left upset. Forgive me if I'm not trying to ignore anybody. I'm just trying to scroll through these. I have Jason uh, Daniel Stone. Thank you for your donation. Much appreciated. Let me see if I missed anybody else. Mary Dyer. Kelly J. Keene is hoping to do a tour of Canada. Considering what happened in New Zealand, do you think she will be safe in Canada? Uh, I'm guessing Kelly J. Keene is, uh, Posey Parker. Is that who it is? If that's who it is, uh, I'd like to think she'd be safe, but you know, the lunacy, if, if you're talking about the, yeah, the woman, I think that's who you're talking about. The woman, uh, who got attacked in New Zealand and so on, by the way, I've been on her show. If I'm thinking it's the same person, uh, I think she'll be okay, but you never know. The, the woke are insane. Uh, back health 101. Why do women in the workplace gossip so much? <laughs> well, I think both men and women gossip, although the the content of their gossip uh, assorts along evolutionarily relevant content. You follow what I'm saying? There's actually some pretty interesting papers, which I discuss uh, some of it in this book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, that looks at the evolutionary roots of gossip. So check that out. Check that out. Steve Brake. Oh, thank you. You're here. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you so much for your very generous donation. My goodness, if everybody were to give donations like some of the people here, which again, if you consider the fact that I do hundreds and hundreds of clips, chats, you know, lectures, all for free, uh, I truly appreciate your donations. Uh, My dream would be to be able to be sufficiently financially secure to be able to decide whether I wish to instantiate my what I call my escape velocity. There are so many things that I'd like to do, but of course it's difficult to do when you're constrained by certain realities. Although I don't really adhere to those constraints, maybe that's the problem. Maybe they're coming for me next. Let me just check to see if I've missed anybody. Chowderhead. I had a thought yesterday that it actually requires a great deal of privilege and entitlement to be equipped with the required arrogance an ego to declare that you're offended. Am I cooking with gas? What? Sorry. Let me read that again. Chowderhead. I want to be focused. You were kind enough to give a donation. So let me give it as you. I had a thought yesterday that it actually requires a great deal of privilege and entitlement to be equipped with the required arrogance and ego to declare that you're offended. Oh, I see. So you mean that you know it for someone to be offended because they were misgendered while sitting at their $80,000 a year tuition at Wellesley requires that you be privileged and entitled. If that's what you mean, bingo, you're exactly right. Yes, sir. You got it. Okay. Did I cover everybody so far? Okay. Anthony, I did. Shrod Cab UK. I have Asperger's. Yes. Chowder Head. Yes. Going down the list. uh, Steve Brake, thank you so much again. And uh ravi thank you so much back health we got it mary dyer got it who else where are the people jason daniel oh ravi you're looking great thank you so much uh so far ravi takes the biggest donation of uh this session thank you so much you're too kind ravi uh it's it's great to see you as well uh i hope that the project that we had talked about is going well That prequel, thank you so much for your contribution. Jack Cross, we're done. Okay, I'm not seeing any. Oh, okay, we got a a new guy. Uh, DERNA1804, is groupthink a fundamental human survival instinct? Well, yes. So, look, some of the most famous experiments in the behavioral sciences and in psychology are about conformity. Right. So, so to your point, right? To the extent that groupthink is ideological conformity, right? I want to I want to take the same positions as everyone else within my tribe is taking is a form of conformity, ideological conformity. So th- think about the Solomon Ash experiment. Many of you may or may not have heard of it. So this is the experiment where you you show people three lines, okay, and then one other line here. One of the the the line on this side is clearly the same length as only one of the three lines here. So there's lines A, B, C, and then line X. Line X is clearly the same length as line B. So anybody who's not blind would be able to see that. Yet the point of the experiment is to see what happens if you ask, let's say, eight people to tell you which of the lines A, B, C is the same as X. And the first seven are fake subjects, they're Confederates, and they, give, they utter the wrong answer. Can you get the eighth person to completely go against his eyes? And again, these are very unambiguous stimuli, right? They're not, it's not as though it's fuzzy, it's gray, it's very clear. And yet you can get many people to go along. And so, yes, there is an evolutionary argument to be made for why we are a social animal. We don't wish to be ostracized from the group. But of course, there is an evolutionary argument to also at the right time stand out from the group right? So in some cases, social proofing is good. In other cases, it's good to stand out from the group. So in the mating context, you don't want to be part of the herd. You want to be the one who stands out. So it's a complicated repertoire. At times, it makes evolutionary sense for us to fit in nicely within the group. And at other times, it makes perfect sense for us to stand out from the group. We have another uh, donor. We have Rasmus Roivsved. I hope that I've answered that correctly the number seems very high. So thank you for that donation, but it comes in a foreign currency. So it could be either incredibly generous or 14 cents, but irrespective. Thank you so much for being here. Dear Dr. Saad, you clearly had great success in the wife department. I have, I have, I always say, I mean, I'm first very thankful for the marriage that I have, and also very thankful for the amazing partner that I have, by the way, in my forthcoming book, which you all imagine if every single one of you were to go out and pre-order a copy at the end of today's chat. Uh, Very, very helpful. Please do so. It goes up in the rankings ASAP. Uh, I have a whole chapter at the two most important decisions that will either impart great happiness or great misery upon you, and that is choosing the the right spouse and choosing the right job or profession. And and I, I go into why that is and what are some you know, uh, uh, rules of thumbs that you could use in making the appropriate decision. W- what kind of decision-making processes can hopefully lead you to the right decision? Uh, I won't give it away, but yes, it is a very important decision. My question is, should should propo- should I propose to my girlfriend now or save up for a lavish wedding first? Well, I would have to hear a lot more about your situation. So, right, uh, there are so many parameters that can, you know how old are you how old is she how long have you been together uh is there tension in that you haven't proposed yet uh are there parental expectations uh, are you finished with your education or not so it's it's very very hard for me to answer that you know void of having tons more information uh, so i you know i don't want to lead you down the wrong path so i can't answer that but what i can tell you is uh you know what so to the point of lavish wedding, personal opinion, although people may disagree with this, I think that the money that is spent on a lavish wedding is really wasted money. I think if you take that money and use it for a down payment for a house, I think if you take that money and use it to, uh, to start your life together uh, uh, you know, in all sorts of other important ways, uh, that would be much better. If you're thinking about going to graduate school, you could use that money to to, to go to graduate school. The, the lavish weddings are really a, a signal to the community. So, for example, in, in the community that I come from, of course, there are lavish bar mitzvahs, and I actually talk about that in this book, in the Evolutionary Basic Consumption. Even funerals can be done in a lavish way where you are engaging in various forms of conspicuous consumption and costly signaling. So there is nothing... Uh, you know, uh, magical and divine about spending, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a wedding. Imagine what you can, what how, what else you could do with that money. The number of books you can buy for for for that amount of money, the the number of trips you can take together. You could take ten trips of fifteen thousand dollars each. You know, you can go to Malta and then go to Sicily. Then you can maybe visit South Africa. And then you could go to Namibia. Then you can go visit Argentina and you wouldn't have spent $40,000. So the lavish part, my the way that I live life, I wouldn't waste it on that, uh, but to each his own. But if she's a good one, treat her right, hang on to her, because there may never be a better one. So be careful. There you go. Best of luck, Rasmus. Uh, let me go on. Let me see if I've missed anybody. Uh, okay, we've got another one here. Uh, Chris... Oh, you're, it's wonderful to see you back. Uh, uh, Chris P- Panagiotopoulos, Dr. Sad, am I correct to think the academia on psychology has massive female in-group bias? Currently, the previous question that I failed was about evolutionary biology approach reaching mainstream, not only academia. Uh, well, I mean, one of the reasons why I do all of my public engagement uh, it's precisely because I would like evolutionary psychology to become part of the the toolbox of all people. You know, we have what's called folk psychology, right? Folk psychology, just like you have folk biology or folk physics, is sort of the the way that the average person, when they walk around the world, what they think about these topics. You know, what's your folk physics about? how a projectile should move or behave what's your folk psychology about you know why people do this so it's what it's it's the lay person's understanding of different phenomena in in nature whether it be human phenomena or you know physical phenomena uh and and of course many people are not Uh, familiar with evolutionary explanations now in some cases they know these explanations innately because they are themselves darwinian beings so they have an intuition that is exactly correct but many times they don't so for example if i ask people what do you think is the number one predictor of why there might be uh, childhood abuse in a home and i sit back and i listen to all of the you know uh predictors that my students will give well none of these are remotely as close as predictive as whether there is you're ready I, I've discussed this before some of you may know this explanation if there is a step parent in the home it's a 100 times greater factor in terms of its predictive in its predictive power than the next factor in predicting whether there is child abuse in a home and of course there are very clear evolutionary reasons why a step parent may be differentially harmful to their step child than say a, a biological child so there are, there's great value in understanding uh evolutionary principles and when when when I first come to class irrespective of which course I'm teaching it could be an undergraduate course it could be MBA it could be a MSC meaning masters of science or it could be a phd course I always tell students the the yes I'm going to be teaching you about evolutionary psychology. But, you know, many times it's it's as related to consumer and economic decision making. But no, I'm actually going to teach you. I'm going to give you a universal explanatory key to teach you why our human nature is the way that it is. How you use it could be in many different ways. You can use it to explain why you were jealous at the party when your wife or husband was speaking too long to that woman. You can use it to understand why people fight for the corner office with the most windows. You could use it to explain why you know, your menstrual cycle causes you to be more likely to gain weight in certain time periods than others. So there's an endless number of ways that you could apply. So the reason why I go on shows like Joe Rogan, other than he's a fun guy to talk to, is because by going on such a show, I can reach 10, 20 million people in one shot. And the reason why I do these chats, the reason why I started my channel, my podcast, is because I I don't think that academics should be speaking only to other you know, fancy schmancy academics, they should try to excite the public about the work that they do. So so yes, I think there's a lot more work to be done, and hopefully I'm doing my part. Uh, am I correct to think that academia uh, has a female in-group bias? Well, there certainly is a, an increasing number of women in many, many disciplines. Uh, as I've explained uh, in various uh, places, uh, if you look at uh male to female ratios at the associate level associate means like half a bachelor's bachelor's degree master's degree and doctorate across five racial groupings so that's that's a that's a, a a five by four matrix okay so there are twenty cells in every single one of the cells women outnumber men and yet we still hear the bullshit about we need to be better allies to women. Yes it is true there was a time when women were systematically discriminated against in university settings that's no longer true so a decent honest person revises their positions in light of new realities but no so not just in psychology and in, in countless disciplines you have a now a huge female uh, lopsidedness and just in terms of the numbers now i don't care whether it's more men or more women or more Uh, purple people or short people or tall people, I just think that there shouldn't be uh, mechanisms whereby you systematically discriminate against one people. We used to discriminate against women in the past. We certainly discriminate against men today in all sorts of ways. Both of these realities were wrong. Pick the best people irrespective of whether they ovulate or not. All right, let's move on. Who else we got? Okay. Did I miss anybody? We got Chris. We covered him. We got Rasmus. Maybe Rasmus has left us and has gone to propose to his lovely girlfriend. Who knows? Hi, God. You want FU money? <laughs> yes, I do want FU money, actually. And uh, I'm not seeing your donation. It's not helping to for the FU. I, I want FU money, not so that I can tell people FU, but I want FU money so that I can trace my trajectory in complete freedom. A few days ago... <laughs> Maybe yesterday, Prager, you some of you may know it, put out a, a thing, you know, what would money allow me to do? And then they ask you to fill it out. And I, I wrote, it would grant me the freedom to fully instantiate all of my creative impulses, right? Oftentimes, you want to be working on the next book, but oh, you can't now because you're busy teaching or you've got too much administration or you've got to go through 50 phd candidate files or you have to do this or you right so in a given day i have you know 600 different things that i have to do many of those things i love some of them i love less i would love to be able to have enough money to fully decide to do only the things that i wish to do so it's not it's not a few money so that i could show off or buy a fancier car or a bigger house it's so that i can Just, you know, life is short. Every moment is truly precious. And if you could spend your time doing the things that matter most to you, uh, I think you're well on your way to being happy. Something that I definitely discuss in my forthcoming book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. I hope that you will check it out. Okay. Let's see if we got anybody else that I'm missing. Nobody else. Okay. Have you been to the UK? Greetings from Wales. Yeah, I have been to the UK. Thank you. We just got two donations, which I will answer in a second. Uh, I've been only once to England, and interestingly, earlier today at 11 o'clock in the morning, I spoke to someone on Zoom to appear to be a headliner at a very, very big event in uh, London, England, in September. We're still discussing the details. If I do end up going, I will certainly announce it, and Hopefully, I'll see you there. Uh, last year, I very much regretted that I I had been invited to be uh, a, mem- a, a participant in the Oxford Union debates, which is a very beautiful, prestigious forum uh, on the side of, you know, has wokeness gone too far? And some of you may have seen that uh, Constantine Kissin and someone else, I think maybe James Lindsay, were there. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they were there, and I'm sure, sure they did a great job, but I was supposed to be on the... I had been contacted very early and I didn't end up going because it it conflicted with my teaching schedule. You see, talking about having a few money. And also, frankly, they weren't... Never mind that they weren't offering any money for me to go there. They expected me to pay for my own way there. Now, I don't... I didn't have any research funds that would allow me to do that. So I wasn't going to spend, you know, money from my mortgage to go to Oxford. So hopefully... If I do end up going to this event next year, maybe I can also go to Oxford. So I'm hoping to, to come back to England soon. John Ulrich, thank you so much for your uh, contribution. I'm the program chair for local university EE program. What is EE? Electrical engineering program? Okay, I have the opportunity to become a dean of the school, but I'm interviewing for industry work. Am I jumping out of edu- education too rashly? Well, it's it's difficult to, to know, right? I, I'd have to know so much more about... You, how long you've been in academia, what's your trajectory in academia, why would you consider leaving? So it's, I I can't answer that, but more generally, you know, I'm always, uh, I mean, if I can put it that way, heartbroken when people decide to leave academia or not even enter academia because they're, you know, concerned about all the parasitic ideas and stuff. We're losing tremendous amount of brain power and, and potential talent and prospective talent. Because people realize that it's insane that you can't say a word that's out of place. I mean, not as you know, I'm I'm a unbelievable anomaly in academia, uh, and even some of the other people who supposedly are irreverent professors, who you know speak their minds, they don't. If I may say, they don't nearly speak their mind as much as I. Do. I probably tweet more on a Monday morning than most of the so-called irreverent professors do in their careers. So that is a bit soul-crushing for most people because, you know, people get into academia because they, they want to do things that matter, but then they become cowardly. They become apathetic. They, they don't speak their mind. So I can't speak for you. I don't know if... Look, if you if you love the life of an academic, it's it's tough to walk away from it uh, because, you know, I, I, lo- I love being a professor. I love being able to just navigate all day long in ideas, and in intellectual play. One of the things I talk about in my forthcoming book, is life as a playground, and I basically argue that science is the ultimate form of play, right? Think about a puzzle when you 're doing a puzzle let 's say a thousand piece puzzle that 's no different than science in science you 've got a thousand different variables, and you're trying to see which one which one connects to which one, which one doesn 't predict anything in which direction does the connection happen so science is nothing more than you know the the highest form of intellectual play so I can't tell you whether you should leave or not, but uh, it's, uh, you know, just make that decision in a sober manner because sometimes if you leave academia, it's hard to get back uh, to an academic ecosystem. Thank you very much for your contribution, John. Uh, Yofer Sheffield. Oh, Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday. Sheffield United, I believe, is playing Manchester City in the semi final of the FA Cup soon. I don't know if this means anything to you. I only said that because your last name is Sheffield. Have you read Andrew Doyle's new book, The New Puritans? If so, thoughts, I was a little bit disappointed. wasn't as funny as Parasitic Mind. Come on now. What, What could be as fantastic as The Parasitic Mind? Why must you make such a comparison? No, but in all seriousness, I haven't read the book, although Andrew Doyle has been on my show. I haven't, I think that Andrew Doyle is, is the, the the guy behind uh, Titiana McGrath, right? I think that's who it is. So I do think that he's been on my show, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but I haven't read that book, so I can't tell you uh, you know, how any thoughts about the book. But thank you for the kind words about Parasitic Mind. Glad that you enjoyed it. Okay, do we have anybody else? Did I miss anybody? Hold on a second. Okay, a load of Sheffield bread. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Nice one. My last name is Corleone. Oh, okay. Do you have any ambitions of becoming a U.S. citizen? Uh, uh, well, uh, yes, uh, certainly moving to the U.S. I have ambitions to do that because I'm tired of uh, Canadian bullshit. Uh, have you ever mistaken for Edward Sad? Or I think you mean you mean Edward Said. Is that who you mean, the Orientalist who studied the, you know what he calls Orientalism? I'm looking here. I know I you gotta to draw my attention. You gotta donate. Where are you guys? Where's where's all where are all the uh the supporters? I'm flipping, I'm looking. Uh John, I've answered. Chris, I've answered. I don't think I've missed anybody. No, I haven't. Okay, well, we might be done earlier than I thought. Okay, oh, we got a new, we got a new person. Michael. Mar- Marmorstein. Hi, GAD. With an exclamation point, but misspelled of GAD. It's impolite for me to point out that you misspelled it, but that's okay. GAD, G-A-D, last name S-A-A-D. The reason why I'm correcting you is because sometimes when people then go to search for, let's say, follow me on Twitter, if they misspell it, they won't get it. So it's GAD, G-A-D, last name S-A-A-D. So, hi, Michael. Love your perspectives. Thank you so much. How do you distinguish postmodern Music from unusual music that is just an, unacqu- an unacquired... T- wow, what a good question. So postmodern music, at least in the way that I understand the term postmodern music, postmodern art, and so on, is that really there are no rules, right? So uh, it's just you you, you can do anything you know, because it's all subjective. Just like postmodernism as a philosophical, as a, quote, epistemological movement says that there are no absolute truths, Postmodern art or postmodern music says that there are no, you know, absolute aesthetic standards, right? Art is subjective. Music is subjective. Uh, So your question is a great one because what you're saying is, you know, in some cases you think that something, forgive me to my Scottish followers, but I love the term. I have appropriated, I now own that term. Sometimes you have postmodern music that is shite and sometimes you have music that is not postmodern that is equally shite. How do we distinguish between the two? I think postmodernist music follows no structure. I'm not a musicologist, but in other words, you could have anybody doing any random stuff acting like a buffoon. As I've seen in some posts, I've actually posted maybe a year or two ago, this incredibly ridiculous postmodernist gibberish where they're doing like breathing and screaming and, and that becomes a form of postmodern music. That's just nonsense, right? That's just, you know, full auditory profundity, right? Whereas, uh, you know, most opera to me is pure and utter shite. Okay. Most opera is just heavy metal music for people with a progressive lisp. You see how I'm now sophisticated, right? A lot of it is just screaming, but I can understand how it can have an acquired taste element, right? Uh, If you understand the context, you understand the history, maybe if you habituate to some of the nonsensical screaming, it can be good. So I think that's how I would differentiate it. The one that is postmodernist does not follow any rules, syntactical rules, aesthetic rules, uh, philosophical rules, semantic rules, whereas the other one does follow rules, right? Opera does have structure. But it might require some effort for you to acquire taste for it. So I hope I've answered your question. Uh, moving on to the next person, we've got uh, John Ulrich. Oh, hi there. Uh, in our college, anyone who deviates from this, this prescribed DIE ethos, I'm glad you used that acronym. I don't like when people use the other one because DIE is very apt DIE, diversity, inclusion, equity. DIE is a death spiral, it's a, it's a cancerous ideology. It's where meritocracy goes to die. So I'm glad you used that. In our college, anyone who deviates from the prescribed die ethos isn't part of the team. I would have to knuckle under if I became dean. I hear you. But guess what? Imagine if you are the one who has the courage to say, no, I'm going to be the guy who uh, is the agent of change. Historical people are those who do stand up. They're the ones who either do horrible things and be, are remembered for it or do great things and are remembered for it right you look at many of the nobel prizes that have been won throughout history most of their the orthodoxy at the time thought that that was quackery so usually if some if a whole bunch of people attack you i'm saying now in the academic context it's either because your your work is truly garbage or your work is really important and the fact that they are reacting to you with such vitriol means that you are on the right track so I've never been someone who has modulated myself one millimeter. I'm simply too authentic to a fault. I'm too pure to a fault. I just follow the truth where it takes me. So that's really for you, John, to decide whether, you know, you wish to go along to get along, live a uneventful, but may I say uh, less impressive life or to say, you know what? If I stand up and I know that God's sad standing up and I know that this guy will stand up and this girl will stand up, together we can make a change. So I can't tell you, we each have to navigate through the calculus of the risks and rewards, you know, in our own ways. But for me, at least, when I go to bed at night, as many of you may have heard me mention before, when I go to bed at night, I need to feel as though I never walked away from the defense of truth. I was never inauthentic. I never pretended not to see a violation over there because then I would feel fraudulent. I would feel inauthentic and I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So I think that if you live by that ethos, then the decision will be made for you. Again, I don't want to make any decisions on your behalf, but I'm giving you my advice if if I were in your brain. But of course, I'm not. Thank you, John, for that contribution. Uh, moving on here, we've got... Matthew Phillips, thank you for uh, your contribution. I am sad. I dropped out of my bachelor's in education, and adult education, but the professor kept teaching me how to be a better white man to minorities like our prime feminister. <laughs> okay, so I'm guessing that you are Canadian. Uh, I still got a job teaching ESL, English as a Second Language, but don't want to pay to learn racism. See, this this is the kind of stuff that breaks my heart. Here is Matthew Phillips, a guy who's trying to get an education, trying to do the right thing, try to do something. And then he he gets so... He drowns in parasitic ideas. All of these ideas covered in this book. He drowns in this stuff. He says, no, I'm not willing to play along. And then, look, I can understand. He says, I'm I'm not paying for this garbage. I don't want to be excuse me, a willing, passive participant and you trying to spread all this cancerous garbage in my brain and I have to pay for it. And so he leaves. Now he leaves and then this next person leaves and this next person leaves and suddenly the the brain drain, but in, in this case, the brain drain is not all, the brain drain is leaving from Canada to the US. The brain drain in this case is people who otherwise could have contributed in academia are leaving in droves. That's, That's disgusting. That's shameful. Imagine if there was a mechanism where all great soccer players or potentially great soccer players are leaving and not becoming soccer players for reasons X, Y, Z. Then whatever you'd be watching on soccer wouldn't be the best players possible. So I'm sorry that you went through this, uh, Mr. Phillips. Uh, But again, just like for the previous gentleman, John Ulrich, maybe you can be a contributor to change. Uh, I can understand the desire to walk away. But if we all walk away, then the whole system crumbles. That's why I stay. And that's why, though, I always ask for your support. Please support me. Uh, If you have any questions or comments that you'd like me to address here, we still have a few more minutes, please consider supporting me. Okay, we're going to Travis Bristow. Through your excellent skill and intellect and debate, have you ever successfully changed the mind of a third or fourth wave feminist? What a great question many, many people. I'm, I'm, you asked me the question, so I'm not trying to uh, brag, but I have uh, changed many people. As a matter of fact, I just, this morning, I haven't replied to her yet, but I received a just a lovely email from a student who just finished the course with me, who said, you know, I first came into the class and I would hear some of your theories and I would be angry, like right, she was triggered for whatever reason, because I was talking about evolutionary psychology, sex differences, who knows what was upsetting her. But then, I had an aha moment. I completely changed. Now I realize, you know, she said some amazing things. I talk about your stuff at dinner parties. So, I mean, that's why I do what I do, right? If, if I thought that there was no way to penetrate, you know, people's cognitive and emotional obstacles, then there'd be no point doing any of what I'm doing. So, Yes, I've changed many, many minds. I've changed people's minds when it comes to, you know, how much they loved Justin Trudeau. And then they say to me, oh, my God, I wish I had listened to you. You know, that's that's why I do what I do, right, which is to create new knowledge, spread knowledge, spread good ideas. Actually, the festival that I'm going to in London, hopefully, in September is all about the spread of good ideas. So, So, Travis, yes, I have changed many a mind. Thank you so much for your question. Okay, moving on to uh, Rasmus. Oh, you're back. Great. Did you did you, did you you send in... Uh, did you go down on your knees? Not yet. You're still here. All right, doctor. I will go ask her. She will say yes, no doubt. Keeping my fingers crossed, let me know. If she says yes, send me an email. Let me know. I'm sure she will. Are rituals like weddings just relics of the past or do they have a proper function? They do have a proper function, right? It's a way to... Uh, announced to the community that these two people are now off the mating market. It's a way to uh, for the two families to get together. Uh, there are all sorts of functional value that comes from having the ritual. All I was saying to your earlier point is y- you can meet all of those functional values without spending $80,000 or $120,000 unless your precise goal is to engage in very extravagant, showy, conspicuous consumption to show that you are top dog. But most people end up going into great debt so that they can show that you know they're lavish and important. So, so yes, there is value in publicly ce- celebrating your union, but you can achieve those things without having it being, ost- ost- you know, uh, ostentatious and lavish. Thank you so much, Rasmus. Best of luck. Send me an email, let me know. You just have to say, this is Rasmus, she said yes, and and I'll be happy for you. Okay, moving on. Uh, Travis, I've already answered. I'm going now to Andrew. Thank you so much for your contribution. Are you familiar with the theory of the, quote, the slow cancellation of the future, close quote? Uh, No, I'm not. It seems to be depressingly true with the only exception being the acceleration of woke ideologies in all forms of cultures. So are you familiar with the theory of the slow cancellation of the future? I'm not familiar with it, but I'm, what I'm gathering from this is that what you're arguing is that the the woke parasitic ideas are not slowing down, they're accelerating. Uh, and and I, as I said earlier, when someone said, do you, do you see this ending? And I said that, unfortunately, I don't yet. I think I'll have to thus far, agree with you that, yes, woke ideas continue to proliferate. But if we take a slightly longer-term view, I think that that all of the parasitic stuff will lose at the end. It will be eradicated. There will be an autocorrective mechanism whereby the better ideas will win. The question, though, is that you have to kind of fasten your seatbelt and be patient and fight over the long haul, right? So in the same way that it took depending on the idea pathogen that I discuss in the parasitic mind, postmodernism, cultural relativism, militant feminism, social constructivism, each of these idea pathogens, you know, depending on which one we're talking about could have started about 80, 90 years ago, up to 40 years ago. So, so, but it's taken many, many decades for these ideas to become normalized in HR departments, in Hollywood, in politics, in journalism, right? It wasn't overnight that those ideas, what you had to do is you had to inculcate many generations of of students with all this bullshit so that when they went out and became our leaders and our politicians and our CEOs, they they were completely parasitized by this bullshit. and. I'd like to think that the inoculation against these ideas won't necessarily take 40 or 50 years, but the battle won't be won you know, by next Tuesday, it, unless there is truly a unified, you know, concerted effort by the silent majority to speak together all in one voice. And then I think we can truly accelerate the speed at which we defeat the bad ideas. The problem is that most people don't wish to speak out. And so it'll be a long drawn out, you know, war of ideas. Thank you very much for your question, Andrew, and for your contribution. Moving on to Corey Cassell. Thank you so much for your contribution. Hi, God. I respect the clarity of your thought. Thank you. You're very kind. Wondering if you've seen Megan Kelly describing her son's school where kids are asked to show count of five fingers, how heteronormative they would they feel today seems insidious in my humble opinion well i haven't heard about that specific example but i do receive from countless fans from around the world typically from north america uh all kinds of horror stories of some of the woke nonsense that's happening at the children's school i I haven't heard about that particular one but i can certainly tell you that i love megan kelly I love her precisely because she, uh, she's an exemplar of the type of mindset that we need to win the battle of ideas. Right? She's uh, she's both incredibly beautiful and feminine. While ha- and she's actually said she said that you know she used to be a tomboy and then she grew up to be quite feminine. Uh, she was too modest to say that she's beautiful, but she is. But yet she's got many masculine traits. She, this is in her words, where she, you know, she fights hard. She's she can be she can be unforgiving. Not that only, not that it's only a masculine trait to have that. But you know, typically it's associated with, with uh, you know, sort of this aggression, uh, not physical, but you know, even ideological aggression uh, is associated with more you know masculinity, and you know she's irreverent. She doesn't she doesn't she suffer fools gladly. And I think that's why her and I. Get along so famously well. I've been on her show twice. She's been on my show once. Uh, the people who are here today might be the first. Although I think I put out a tweet to announce who my endorsers for my forthcoming book are. She's one of them. She wrote a fantastic endorsement, fantastic blurb for my forthcoming book. So for all sorts of reasons, uh, I'm a big fan of hers. She's funny. She's intelligent. She's well-prepared. She's lovely. She's beautiful. She's beautiful. Uh, So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me in the least bit that, regrettably, her son has to, uh, you know, how heteronormative. So, if if, if five is the maximal or ten, so this is how heteronormative I'm feeling today. Although some of you may have seen that I recently announced I came out on my show. I came out as a gay man. I don't know if you saw it, because it turns out that my biological female wife... Right, she's female, you know, biologically. Uh, came out to me and said that she self-identifies as a man. And I and we both we all know here in this in this room that all you need to do is self-identify as sex and you become that sex. So she self-identifies as a man, therefore I'm a gay man because that's it. She is a man, right? The fact that she doesn't have a penis doesn't make her not a man. Just like if you have a nine-inch penis, you could still be a gorgeous woman. So Imagine now how high I score on victimology poker when not only am I a childhood war refugee, not only do I have this gorgeous, glorious olive skin, I'm a brown man from the Middle East, war refugee, childhood war refugee, Arabic Jew, but I'm now a gay man. I win. You can't dislodge me from the hierarchy of victimology. Okay, we've got, who else we got? We got Theophrastus 3.0 with a beautiful... Uh, icon of I'm guessing I, I don't know if that's if there is such a philosopher I'm afraid I don't know who that is Theophrastus sure I know who that is I appreciate your ability to cut well first of all thank you for the contribution I appreciate your ability to cut through the meaningless sophistry that seems to dominate our politics and culture these days if woke education camps become a thing I <laughs> I hope we're in the same gulag yes yes you seem like a lovely person uh, you know, I'm so glad that you said this because I despise faux profundity. I despise what you're calling here meaningless sophistry. That's why I sometimes can appear, although I'm—I always do it in the in the best of, you know, light, best of spirit. Even when I attack someone, I do it. I think politely, playfully. There's always kind of a a a, a, a twinkle in my eye. But I despise some of the public intellectuals who are super smart. You see how I'm I'm doing with my progressive Lisp? You see that? You see, you have to tighten this. My brother used to say, tighten, tighten it, right? So a lot of the meaningless sophistry that you get, the full profundity, precisely comes from scammers, uh, falsely profound people who have to engage in this, as you say, meaningless sophistry, because that allows them to appear profound. People who have really good ideas don't have to engage in that. That doesn't mean that I don't have a very large vocabulary. That doesn't mean that I can't be very professorial. I mean, I just came back from Stanford and USC. It doesn't get more prestigious. Uh, But it means that if my ideas are good, they should be consumable by the greatest number of people possible. That's why I love when I receive letters from you know, Green Beret and Navy SEALs and corrections officers and truckers, right? Imagine I get a, an email from a trucker who says, you know, I do a long haul from Kansas City to whatever, to Wyoming, and I sit there and I listen to your stuff and I love it, Professor Sad. That makes me so happy because if I'm able to reach that gentleman, that means I'm exactly speaking in the right language. I'm making the material palpable, exciting, to a large swath of people. So thank you for realizing that and noticing that and stating it because that's exactly, I think, what a good communicator should be able to do. If if I could only speak to a few other enlightened, haughty professors, then that's bullshit. It's useless. But for most academic, the reason why they only speak to fellow academics is because they can't pull it off. They can't go on Joe Rogan and be interesting for three hours. They can't just have a an open conversation like here think about all the number of topics that i've already addressed in the last hour and 15 minutes here Uh, because people who know me know that i'm down to earth i mean i get approached you know tons of times by people on the street and i'm i'm always so thrilled because it it's it's enthralling to know that you know people are consuming your stuff. I mean, not, not from an ego perspective, not from a narcissistic perspective, but ultimately, you know, a musician wants to have their music played by, you know, as many people or listened to it by as many people as possible. And uh, an, an intellectual should have their ideas consumed by as many people as possible. So when you get, you know, a 70 year old woman cross the street to meet you and a, 16 year old boy come up and say, Oh, I saw some of your funny skits that you do when you're mocking people, and that's amazing, right? So, so thank you very much. I really, really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Okay, we've got a new, we got Saman Khazani. Wow, thank you so much for your very generous uh tied for second highest donation today. The, the highest one still remains, Dr. Ravi. Uh, one could say the inherent purpose of life isn't necessarily to sit atop all hierarchies. That being said, how in your own life have you dealt with the brutal reality of the idealized versions of yourself you realize would never come to fruition? Uh, So, I mean, there are several concepts here, some of which I'm not seeing the link to them, but I'll answer in in the best way that I understand from your question. And then you'll, uh, you'll tell me if I'm on the right track. Uh, so the brutal reality of the idealized version of yourself you realize would never come to fruition so in in the forthcoming book when i'm talking about uh regret so in one of the ending chapters i talk about you know if you you've lived a good life if you've minimized the amount of uh retroactive regret that you experience right if if you are uh you know drowning under you know, oh my God, I regret I did this. I regret that I didn't do this. And and there's nothing you could do to change that. Then you probably didn't live your full life. For me, the, the main looming one has been, I've always been interested in only two things in terms of careers. I've always wanted to be a professional soccer player and I've always wanted to be a professor. And I always thought that I would be both. I would first, you know, play until the end of my career. And then the rest of my life would be a cerebral life. And as it turns out, Both because I had a very, very serious career ending injury and Canadian championships 1982, but also for other reasons, I wasn't able to meet that fate. And so every time the World Cup comes around, every time there's, you know, I go play with people and I'm reminded of the talent that I once had, although I don't, I'm not nearly as good as I used to be when I was 17. I'm slower, older, less limber. I can't accelerate as much, I can't run as fast, but uh you know it always makes me really hurt because you know we we we do come on this earth with certain unique skills. And if you can find what those unique things that you're good at and truly meet your talent where you need to meet it, then I think uh in my case luckily because I had this second love which is books which is intellect which is being an academic now that i did pursue it fully i you know i i like to say you know i did win the world cup of life other than living in montreal i'd rather be in southern california or maybe florida uh it allows me to be somewhat protected from a sense of regret because you know my life thus far and i i hope there are many many many more infinite years left uh i have lived a meaningful life and so uh some things you can alter uh, so for example, I tell people when they are, you know, regretful that they didn't go to school, I always tell them the story and, and I won't give it away, but you should really read my forthcoming book. Please go out and pre-order it. The sad truth about happiness. Uh, I tell the story, some stories of people who went to school when they were into their seventies and eighties and nineties. I had a guy on my show about six months ago, Manfred Steiner who was an MD, a medical doctor, became a hematologist, then got a PhD in biochemistry in 1967, I think, and just finished this past fall a PhD in physics at the age of 89. Age of 89, finished a second PhD, having had a whole career as a physician because his first love had always been physics. He'd always wanted to be a physicist. So, you know, there are some things that we can make changes to, others we can't. Mm Uh, i can't go back and be a professional soccer player but i can you know encourage my children to play soccer so there are ways by which i can soften the regret thank you very much salmon for that fantastic question moving on to the next person jeff horton another person who ties the record for the second largest donation of the day marine salute oh my goodness uh and I see the, the the image, I guess that's the famous image of the Marines taking over. I, I don't remember the name of the, the, the iconic picture. Uh, you, you can't imagine how much. I, I think had I never been a, a soccer player and then an academic, I think probably I would have done very well uh, as a... As a soldier, not so much because I like to to adhere to authority. Maybe I wouldn't have been very good at, you know, adhering to authority. I am a kind of free thinker, but the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the, the sense of honor that comes with being in the military is something that really appeals to me. And I think that's why a lot of military people seems to be, seem to be also drawn to, to my work, by the way, next Monday, I have Brigadier General Anthony Tata on the show. Brigadier General. How cool is that? What? How cool is that title? Brigadier General. I need to have that title. From now on, I am Brigadier General Gadsad. Uh Marine Salute. Thanks for sounding off like you have a pair. Your courage is equally as inspiring as your wit and sarcasm. No question. Just thank you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service because apparently you are a Marine. I love you guys. Yeah, I I don't know if you guys saw, uh, last year I received a package of all military stuff. Like, you know, here's the stuff from Green Beret. Here's from a Marine, uh, a, an officer who ha- was very touched by a letter that I had read from my son about, you know, thanking, I think it was on Remembrance Day. My son is very young. He was thanking, you know, the, the soldiers for their efforts for their sacrifice and so i can't tell you how much i love you guys thank you very much sir cheers moving on uh thank you jeff calm on ground i just i just invested in my own future happiness this summer by pre-ordering yes yes yes yes thank you so much I, uh, I'm gonna let me first read fin- finish reading what you wrote and then I, I'll say something thank you so much for being such a good humored honey badger role model thank you uh, you know that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book because what would happen often is people would write to me and say you always seem to be joking around happy smiling even when you're going after people you seem to be playful that that's what really by the way pisses me off when people, Sometimes think, oh, you seem so rough on social media and so on. Even when I'm rough, even when I call someone castrato, I mean that's poetic. I'm joking. I'm I'm having fun. Like it's never, even with I don't even want to bring up his name, but the Malibu Meditator. I hate the fact that there seems to be now bad blood between us because I don't. I'm not that guy. I don't want to have bad blood with people. I, I I want. I really. I'm kind of a purist. I just want you know to to spread positivity. Spread good things, spread happiness. So to go back to your point, the reason why I wrote the book, well, I discuss it in the opening chapter. First, people would write to me and say, well, what's your secret? How come you're happy? Now, here's the thing. 50% of our happiness is inscribed in our genes, roughly 50%. So now you might say, oh, that sucks. That means I can't do anything about it. But no, half glass, half full, half empty, literally. Literally. That means that there is 50% of the variance in happiness across people that is up for grabs, whereby there are decisions that you can make that can move you towards Mount Happiness or away from it. There are mindsets that you can adopt that can move you to Mount Happiness or away from it. And so people kept saying, you know, tell us your secret. Why are you, as you said, thank you so much for the kind words. You're good-humored. You're fun. You're jovial. You're down to, you know, you're playful. What's your secret, number one? Second reason why I wanted to write this book is that oftentimes whenever I would I would post something on social media that was prescriptive, like I'm giving some advice or life lesson. I, I was never someone who had thought about writing such books. People would be truly touched by it, right? It, you know, and to me, sometimes I would offer advice that I thought was self-evident, but yet, you know, people would really resonate, it would resonate with them. They'd say, Oh my God, you don't know how much, even let's say, you know, when I now lost a lot of weight, I mean, I was already in the process of writing the book. I mean, when I first started losing weight, I hadn't started anyways. So like when I went on Joe Rogan last time and I talked about, you know, uh, this, the steps by which I lost a lot of weight, that's probably the thing that got, I think I've been on Joe Rogan eight times. So that's eight times times three hours. That's 24 hours of content. And and my journey of weight loss is probably the thing that was most covered around the world. Why? Because people need help. People want to say, hey, g- give me the recipe for how you succeeded in task A, B, and C. So I saw the power of that in, in various interventions I would do online. And so I thought, you know what? Why don't I, you know, I've led so far an, an exciting and, you know, eventful life with a lot of you know, good lessons to be learned. I think I've got interesting things to say. Let's see if I could put together a book that talks about well-being, happiness, but in, in the unique Gad style. So it's a lot of really, if I may say, really cool personal anecdotes that are interwoven with ancient wisdoms. You know, here comes Epictetus. Here comes Seneca the Elder. Here comes Aristotle, right? Uh You know, here come the Stoics or whatever. And then coupled with also contemporary science, neuroscience, positive psychology, behavioral science, uh, you know, science of well-being, psychiatry. And so it's a real mishmash of personal anecdotes, ancient ancient wisdoms, contemporary science put together that hopefully you enjoy. So thank you so much for uh, pre-ordering the book. I hope a few others have. Again, you can't imagine how much it helps. From the perspective of you know really getting off to a good start off the gates so thank you for that uh are there anybody else that i've missed i hope not i don't think so oh yes we do i do have a whole bunch hold on a sec. i just envisioned okay mother june Tabule yay or nay of hello god sad lebanese tabule is lebanese absolutely yay but here's the trick you ready the ratio of parsley to burghul, burghul are the small, I don't know how you say it in English, bulgur, bulgur wheat. Uh, I don't like when it's a lot of parsley. It has to be more meaty. So the really good, you know, homemade parsley, which, uh, not parsley, uh, tabule, which my wife just made, by the way, because we had some guests over, neighbors, for a barbecue, Lebanese barbecue this past weekend. It has to have a lot of bulgur wheat. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, I eat it like I I inject it in my veins, basically. Uh, So yes, very good. Uh, We've got uh, Theophrastus 3.0 is back. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Retired military here. Oh, cool. You've made... You would have made an excellent intelligence analyst or electronic warfare specialist. That's where free spirits and geeks belong. Oh, well, thank you so much. I don't want to give away anything because I want you to read it in the book. Uh, Let's just say there is a story in there uh, that's incredibly powerful that does involve me having had some experience within that Range within that world. I'll leave it at that. It's a very, very powerful story, uh, and it's a story, by the way, that until I told my wife when we were starting to date, no one had known of. In other words, this is something that happened when I was in my teens. I know it's it's making you, uh, uh, you know, you're exci- I hope you're. It's it's making you excited to to learn about it. It's something that happened to me in my late teens. And for many, many years, no one knew about it. And it very much speaks to your uh, intuition of how I would have been in military intelligence. I'll leave it at that. Uh, all right. Oh, someone wrote Malibu Meditator with a, with many uh, smiley faces. Yes. Uh, CJB. Thank you for your contribution. Good evening, Gad, with exclamation point. How are you, sir, or ma'am, uh, or any or two-spirit, or non-gender, or non-binary, or whatever? Have you encountered any politically motivated problems from editors or publishers in relation to your outspoken nature? Holy moly, have I ever. Hello, hello, Gad sad here, king of the honey badgers, the irreverent one. He absolutely. Many, many times. Actually, just recently, I wrote to the editor of Nature Human Behavior. I think there's like as part of the Nature journals, there's one that's I think it's called Nature Human Behavior, where they were you know incorporating diversity, inclusion, and equity within their editorial stuff, which is completely anti scientific. So I wrote to her uh, and said, "Hey, why don't you invite me to write a counter position?" And uh, that didn't go too well. I didn't even hear from her. So throughout my career, listen, I've been, for almost 30 years now, I've been trying to incorporate, so never mind about all the woke stuff, but I've been trying to incorporate evolutionary psychology within the behavioral sciences in general and the business school in particular. And let me tell you, till today, many social scientists abhor the idea that humans are shaped by biology, which of course is an insane idea. Uh, and that's originally how I realized that people can be so parasitized, even intelligent people, professors, could be parasitized by complete bullshit. So that was the start of where I, I thought, oh oh, Houston, we have a problem. And you know, so so the the the excuse me the, the the vision of writing the parasitic mind is one that you know started early in my career as I saw how people could be parasitized. So yes, of course, to your question, I've had many. Politically motivated, uh, you know, hit jobs on me in academia. Many, many, many. Uh, Badad Sad, thank you for your contribution. Do news, do nice guys stop for most starting last? What? D U E, do news, nice guys stop for most starting last? Sorry, buddy. I'm afraid. I don't know if uh, <laughs> you're drunk or what's happening, but that sentence makes no sense. Jew news, nice, guys, stop for most, starting, last. Can't help you there. Uh, what else we've got? I can really recommend The Parasitic Mind. I would never take any person seriously who had only ever read one book. <laughs> I okay, uh, I'm not... Okay, I'm trying to see if I'm, I missed anybody. Tabule. We got calm on ground. Okay, guys, we're running out of time. If you want to, this keep going on, we got about 180 people here. I was hoping that we'd get more like closer to 300, but again, I did this last minute. Uh, Muhammad Mansour jad Hello, Professor Saad. Hello, Muhammad. Uh, I'm just reading now random comments. Uh, okay. I'm not seeing anything. Hit the like button. Who's, who said that? Oh, I'll work. So, okay. Oh, these are people talking to each other on the thread. Uh, guys, unless I don't receive any more questions, we might call it a day. By the way, for those of you, you know, who would like to go back and so this is, you know, live streamed and then later it will be posted, you know, fully on my YouTube channel, uh, you know, permanently. And then I will also upload it on my uh uh podcast. So if you want to go back and you know re- review anything that was said, you can you know it'll be in the permanent record. Okay, God. Uh Leo Leonette, God, I'm a big fan. Can you tell me more about your experience adjusting to the US culture? I can tell you a lot more, but I gotta see a super chat donation. That's the way it works. That's those are the rules of the game. By the way, it's been now years that locals and rumble have, have asked me to join them and uh were even willing to you know offer me a contract to join them I haven't done it because I've always kind of resisted the idea of putting my content behind paywall but I think again I've said this before I I might have to move to some of that because uh it's very difficult to be one way in generosity I give of all my time for years years and years for decades and people consume it I know millions of people consume it but then I don't get the reciprocal love so please consider doing so cjb sorry i meant problems directly related to writing your book has it been difficult finding an editor or publisher okay you came back for that question um you know i mean yes you know imagine trying to get the parasitic mind uh where you're talking about parasitic ideas parasitize people in the in the publishing industry, which is made up of tons of parasitized super woke people. But that's the beauty, by the way, of why I decided to go uh, uh, with Regnery. And it's my, my experience with them has been amazing. Regnery were the publishers, both of Parasitic Mind and of my forthcoming book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. Pre-order it today. Don't forget, I'm counting on you. Uh, Because I avoided a lot of these problems because Regnery is fully committed to Freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry. I was very worried at first, you know, what if I post a tweet that they won't like and they're like, Are you kidding me? We love all this stuff. Do more of it. So you really want to find a publisher that is fully uh has a similar vision to you when it comes to these deontological beliefs that you know people should not be canceled because of a tweet that they put out or so on. And and and you know, frankly, I think that I could have gotten you know, better monetary deals, for example, in terms of book advances I get now because, you know, I've, you know, I've been a successful author. Uh, You know, I get all sorts of people that approach me saying, hey, I I want, you know, why don't you come with us? Why don't I represent you big fancy agents? And I've been totally loyal to Regnery because there's value in having that kind of protection. So I've been lucky in that I've made the right decisions, at least in my, uh, book writing career to try to find publishers that would uh, not be woke. Uh, so that's really the trick. So thank you for your uh, question, for your return question. Okay, let me move on. Uh, Nick K, thank you so much for your uh, contribution. Hi, sir. What do you think about the social psychology discipline? Uh, well, it's great. By the way, uh, you may or may not know this. I mean, some of you may know this. Uh, first semester as a doctoral student at Cornell, 1990 fall 1990 maybe some of you weren't even born there i can't believe that i'm that old uh i had taken a social psychology course advanced social psychology with professor dennis regan and it was in his course that he had assigned the book homicide by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology margo wilson and martin daly husband wife team and the book is about uh, studying patterns of criminality from an evolutionary perspective and so I owe great thanks to an advanced social psychology course for having introduced me to evolutionary psychology. So of course, social psychology is a a wonderful discipline. So for those of you who are interested in reading academic literature from from that discipline, probably the number one uh, academic journal is the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, JPSP, but there are others. Uh, Yeah, so I think it's fantastic stuff. Now, to the extent that, you know, you can maintain the parasitic woke stuff out of the field, then I think it's a beautiful, elegant, rigorous scientific discipline. Once you get some of the bullshit that that seeps in, then of course it becomes less scientific. But generally, yeah, I love social psychology. I, I love all fields of psychology. Social psychology is great. I my in my PhD, one of my uh specialization is one of my minors was cognitive studies so the study of the brain which included cognitive psychology and linguistics and philosophy and computer science so uh you know of course evolutionary psychology consumer psychology uh interestingly though as you, you if you hopefully buy my forthcoming book uh early in the book i talk about the fact that early in my career i had even considered going into clinical psychology and i decided against it for two reasons number one I thought that a lot of the therapeutic approaches were based on pure bullshit and quackery and they weren't scientific enough for my taste. But secondly, and this is where the old Delphic maxim also discussed in my forthcoming book, know thyself is really important, is I knew that while I had the empathy and the sensitivity to be hopefully a good therapist, I I thought that I was too sensitive and sentimental to last as a therapist, meaning that if I'm going to hear about how some child was, you know, uh, sexually abused by their, you know, piggish uncle, that it would be hard for me to compartmentalize and not be personally damaged by hearing all of this cruelty all the time. And so I thought, you know what, I I can't really be doing, even though I had the the instinct to want to help, I thought that I would ultimately, you know, put a bullet in my head because I wouldn't be able to handle, you know, such a life of always having to deal with people's problems. But in a sense, as you will read in the book, I became a de facto global therapist, given the fact that so many people write to me for advice and help and so on. So thank you for that. So yes, I think social psychology is a great field. Brent Taylor, uh, what is your, thank you for your contribution, what is your opinion of the postmodern right wing? I'm not sure what you mean by postmodern right wing. Usually postmodernism is linked to the Left-wing postmodernism, briefly stated, as I explained the parasitic mind, is the, is the epistemological position that there are no absolute truths. We can never speak of truth with a capital T. We are always constrained by subjectivity, by personal biases, by you know cultural relativism, and so on. So to speak of a human universal is silly, according to postmodernism. So that's the postmodernism that I speak of. So I don't know what you mean by right-wing postmodernism. Sorry, I, I don't know how to answer that. Michael Marmorstein is back. Thank you so much for your Hi. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry to misspell your name on the last one. No problem. Wondering what you think of social Darwinism as an evolutionary biologist. Uh, well, I'm an evolutionary psychologist, although I apply evolutionary biology. I'm, I'm probably more of an evolutionary biologist, technically speaking, than most evolutionary biologists. But formally, that's why I... I'm an evolutionary behavioral scientist in that I apply evolutionary biology in studying behavioral sciences, but fair enough. Uh, Social Darwinism is actually a a truly regrettable uh, appellation because many people who end up hating evolutionary theory hate it because of social Darwinism. Social Darwinism was a movement that came out of British class elitists who said, hey, this is more than a, around the time, just shortly after Darwin. Hey, look, there's a natural struggle between social classes. We are the upper class. You are the lowly class. You lost out. Hey, if you die from tuberculosis in your sucky neighborhoods, if you don't have enough money to get an education, that's just the natural struggle between classes. It's a form of Darwinism. It's social Darwinism. So who cares? right the nazis did a similar thing except that instead of using social class as the struggle they used struggle between the races hey it's darwinian we are aryan you are the jews sorry it's darwin you we have to kill you that's just nature Eugenicists did the same thing hey it's darwinian you know we have to uh, castrate uh, homosexuals cuz that way they don't quote spread the gay gene now each of these assholes misused evolutionary theory to their political goals, right? But it has nothing to do with evolutionary theory. That's one of the reasons why many imbeciles, frankly, including academics, dislike evolutionary theory because they think, oh, evolutionary theory is eugenics. Evolutionary theory is Nazism. Evolutionary theory is social Darwinism. Got nothing to do with it. That's just a bunch of cretins and miscreants misusing evolutionary psychology, evolutionary theory, evolutionary biology to suit their political agenda. So, Got nothing to do with anything. Thank you, Michael. Calm on Ground is back. For people watching, be sure and ask your local library to order the book. Yes, please put an order. Hey, we want the sad truth about happiness. Eight secrets for leading the good life. I want it in every library. But again, most importantly, we leave this chat. I want to go on Amazon and I want to see it having shot up. Even if 20, 30, 40 of you, Believe me, I don't make a lot of money if 40 of you buy the book. I'll make $3 a book. So I will I will have made less money from you ordering the books than I will from your generous donations here. But what matters is that if you have enough people who pre-order the book, boy, does that increase the chances of it hitting the bestsellers list week one. Please, please, please pre-order right away. Thank you, Common Ground, for that fantastic suggestion. Rasmus Royceved is back. Get Stephen. Oh, you know what? I thought you were going to tell me that you asked your girlfriend that to marry you, and she said yes, that's not what you're back for. Get Stephen Kotkin on your show. I should I be ashamed that I don't know who that is. Who is Stephen Kotkin? I don't know who that is. Uh, maybe you can email me the, the name, uh, because I might forget. Uh, and if he's interesting, I'd be happy to have him on. Uh Nick K is back. Thanks. Last question, you get not taxed, and are allowed to buy one original copy in that special shop you encountered. Uh, One original copy, you mean of a book? Oh, if that's what you mean, come on. Origin of species, no question. Although, the origin of species that I saw, if if you're referring to that antiquarian bookstore that I uh, went into in Florida last year, that origin of species is $400,000. So if we've got some super uh, wealthy, you know, I've always thought, you know, why isn't there some super billionaire who says, you know, I, I know many billionaires. I know several, believe me. I even know some very truly, truly wealthy people personally. And of course, you, you can't go to them and say, hey, come on, if if you give me $5 million it's not even the interest that you make on your money, but you often think about the old days of the Medici. Remember the Medici family in, in Florence, where they were the patrons to the arts, to science, and so on. Right? Michelangelo can't do what he does, what he did, if he didn't have a patron. Uh, da Vinci couldn't do what he. And so I often think, imagine. I mean, all of you guys here who are giving, you know, donations to your means, I'm I'm infinitely grateful. If it's one dollar, that's great. Thank you. Uh, but imagine someone who's wealthy just says, you know what, I love this guy. I love what he stands for. I love what he's done here. And by the way, a lot of these super racist guys, İbrahim Kendi and all these, they're getting $10 million and $100 million from Jeff Bezos and so on. In what world does such an asshole, a, a racist guy who's spreading a racist message, get, well, because they're, because those billionaire donors are woke, they want to give $10, $20 million to some black guy who's an utter imbecile because, you know, it appears as though they're not racist. They're helping the cause. They're helping a an intellectual of color. Well, how about if you know of a billionaire, give me that escape velocity so I can set up online courses, so I can set up. You know all kinds of exciting projects, a great minds platform where all I do all day is create intellectual content where I could spend all day, every day doing nothing but pumping out books and papers. That would be the dream. So to answer your question, it would have to be Origin of Species first edition. I don't know if there are any available Origin of Species first edition signed. I suspect that those would go for even... Obviously, a lot more than 400000 but that would probably be it for me. Thank you so much. Uh, let's go on. I think, okay, so that was Nick K. Uh, who else we got? Okay, hold on a second. Can I ask my, oh, can I ask my local library to order your book? How? Well, you'd have to go. Thank you so much, uh, be, be Dad Sad, for your uh, contribution and question uh you I, I think there must be some portal whereby you can make recommendations and there must be some automatized way i don't know how but but i know for sure it's been now a few months that on amazon.com amazon.ca amazon you know .uk uh the book is available for pre-order so you can probably find the link and suggest it to your library okay we have anybody else did i miss anybody i don't think so i've covered everybody okay guys uh, unless there are any more questions, let me just make sure that I didn't miss anybody. I I'm always paranoid that I missed somebody who gave a donation at Lebanese or oh, Ayad Sultan. They were doing the same thing with falafel. Okay, I, I guess there's a little fight going on with tabule and falafel. I'll stay out of that. Uh, some of the biggest fights come up when uh, Israelis and Lebanese people, or when Israelis have the gall to say that falafel. Is Israeli? Yeah, I'm going to have to call bullshit on that. Uh, Falafel is Lebanese. And I'm Jewish, but I'm also honest. Falafel is Lebanese. It's not Israeli. Okay. Hammer down protocol 2049. Wow, what a name. Thank you so much for your uh, contribution. Do you have any musical or artistic ability? Wow, what a fantastic question. Artistic ability? No. No. Now, what do I mean by that? Can I draw? My drawing ability is literally, I'm not I'm not being funny or I'm not being hyperbolic. My artistic ability, drawing, is at the level of a stickman. I can't draw beyond that of a four-year-old child. My brain cannot translate an image to drawing. So in that sense, it's zero. But I have great appreciation for the art. So one of the courses that I took as an undergrad when I was in mathematics, pure mathematics and computer science, I mean, it doesn't get more technical than that, is I took a course in ceramics. And by the way, I talk about this in my forthcoming book when I talk about you know, having intellectual variety seeking, trying different things as, as a pathway to, to a happy and content life. And so I talk about how I would try to dabble in all sorts of things. So I have a great love for art. For I have an appreciation for aesthetics. I have, I think, a musical ear. I love music. I'm very passionate about music. I mean, some kinds of music more than others. But oh, can I play the violin? Do I know like how I do I play the piano? Absolutely zero. The only thing I could do well is to just because I have rhythm, I can play the darbuka, which is like a kind of an Arabic, uh, Middle Eastern kind of tam tam drums with my hands, just because, again, I'm rhythmic. So I can do that naturally, but I've never taken courses. I've never, you know. Uh, so so I think I've got an appreciation for the arts. I've got an an aesthetic eye. In Arabic, you say, I have uh, I have taste. And in this case, it applies to aesthetic taste. I have musical ability. I can quickly detect, you know, a song that seems like it's going to be a hit. Uh, but no, I've got no talents, zero zip. And in part, I think to go back to our earlier questions, because I really, my entire career has been, you know, when I was a kid, I played soccer, I was good in school. And then as I progressed, you know, that, that's what I do. I'm, I exercise, I love to train, I love soccer, I love books, I love intellectuals. So I didn't develop some of these other skills as much as I would love to. For example, even in my reading, I'm not a very uh, accomplished fiction reader, Now probably read more than most people but you know if you show if you if you listed me the 100 top works of fiction you it might shock you that a lot of them i haven't read on the other hand non-fiction i'm a machine okay so yeah so to answer your question no i do not have any artistic or musical abilities uh okay i think i've answered everybody okay guys you guys are fantastic anything else does it help to be a jock so that people are afraid that you'll beat them? (laughs) I don't know if that was meant to me. What I can tell you is that I can, having been both a jock and a geek, uh, uh, allowed me to navigate through all of the cliques in high school. I was loved by the intellectual guys, by the artistic folks. Of course, I was the star soccer player. So, you know, it, it... When you're a kid, the best way for everybody to appreciate you is if you're the top guy in an important sport. I mean, right? Not badminton or bowling. No disrespect to those sports. I love bowling. I love badminton. But, you know, you're the star soccer player. The girls are going to like you. The guys are going to respect you. So I think for me, it really did help that I was fortunate enough to you know, not be the the geeky, wimpy academic type. Uh, There you go. Okay, guys. So, Gad, will you make a hardcover version for your new book with your own with your own artistic made drawing? Well, no, that book is already gone. By the way, Ayad Sultan, no fight, Dr. Jed. It's not Jed. A lot of a lot of Middle Easterners think that my name is Jed. It's not, it's not an Egyptianized version of Jed. Gad is a Hebrew name. It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's in the Bible. So it's not Jed. It's Gad. There you go. By the way, my last guest on my show, Astronomani, who's a lovely Muslim woman, the way she kept saying, she, I just posted our chat yesterday on my channel. You should go watch it. Astronomani. She's a real honey badger. I think it's very intimate when someone, when they're speaking to you, keeps saying your name. You know God. and I think that's really a lovely touch. It's It, it demonstrates intimacy. But the way she said my name also was really quite lovely. Uh, all right. Are we done, guys? Hi, Dr. Sad, any diet advice? I'm not seeing El Polo Hermano any super chats. It's two-way, Chacha. It's two-way. I give wisdom. I give my time. You put a little thing in the jar. Time is money. Michael Moore, Marmorstein is back third time. Thank you so much. What material is your whip of self-flagellation made of and where can I get one? <laughs> Do you have any scars? Let me tell you something. So when I first started, I used to use a belt, okay? And that's why they each have different names. Then I said, oh, let, let's mix it up. I took the mosquito swatter and I started using that. So you can go back to my channel and you'll see some of my self-flagellations are with my belt. Some are with a mosquito fly swatter. And then I received an email, another uh, an email, a, a letter, a package from a fan who, by the way, happened to be a, a, a commercial captain, uh, airline pilot, because he left me his card. He said, well, you know, I need you to classy it up. I want to raise your self-flagellation. So he's the one who gave me that whip because a lot of people say, hmm, I guess we're understanding the sexual fetishes that happen in the sad bedroom. I wish it were as spicy as that. I'm not saying that they're not used for other purposes, but I'm saying is that it's not it's not me who went out and purchased that thing. It was a gift from a fan. By the way, you should see some of the incredible gifts that I've received from fans. It's just, you know, it really is amazing, right? Because when you start in your academic career, you, you know, you wonder what your trajectory is going to be and to now be able to connect with so many people, whether it be in this forum, whether it be on my channel, on Joe Rogan, whether it be you're walking down the street, people are coming up to you. I'm truly blessed to have been able to, you know, have uh, such a positive influence on so many people. And I hope to continue to be able to do so. On that note, I think we're at the two-hour mark. Guys, what a pleasure. Thank you all, even the ones who, you know, for whatever reason, weren't able to donate. I forgive you, maybe next time. If you haven't done so, please, please, please consider pre-ordering the book. Uh, Even if you then end up changing your mind, you can change your mind. But I hope you don't pre-order the book right now. The sad truth about happiness, eight secrets for leading the good life. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, really had a lot of fun. I think I really need to make one change. I need to make this into a regular time slot so that more people learn when it's happening rather than me doing my impulsive s- silly thing. Which is, you know, every Monday at four o'clock we do this because I I just would love for more people to come to this uh, forum. Thanks again. Have a great rest of the week. I am enriched by all of your support and love. And uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much, guys. Cheers. Take care. Bye.